Good morning, everybody. Good morning, church. It's good to be back with you. I haven't been preaching much this year so far. Thanks for your patience with me on that. I want to give you an update on my work. I did submit uh, my final thesis, and my professor has already replied and said, you've passed with fine colors. So, isn't that cool? When I got that email, it was the, the first reaction that I had were tears and then a thought, and the thought was, this is my people. It was, it was my community that made this happen. I told you last week a little bit about that story. I'd be happy to tell it more to you later. Throughout my life, I have seen achievement or some kind of score that I did well on a test or whatever, and I say, oh, I did well. This was the first time I looked at it and I said, there's no way this happened without my people. So that includes you, and I'm very thankful. It's good to be back. We're in Acts. We're in Acts chapter 2. We're in a sermon from Peter. And, and today, uh, today we'll finish the second half of his sermon, which is markedly different from the first. It's very interesting. There's a couple of thoughts I wanted to open up with. One would be this. Imagine if God set me in this world, the entire planet, the whole entire globe, and he set me right here on this stage, which, this little corner, you know, this platform. And, and I got to see, there wouldn't be a building here, I got to see some really cool stuff from my vantage point, trees and his creation and so forth. And what if he said, I want you to freely explore all of the world? And I said, that's awesome. Thanks for the invite. I'm going to stay right here. You know, and, and after maybe three, four hundred years, what would you think about when you looked at me? Am I some kind of maniac who's terrible and evil? Probably not. But you might say something like, boy, why would you choose to sit in such a confined spot when the entire world is open to you? Okay? I want to suggest to you before we get going that that is sometimes how we think of salvation. And if I'm sitting on this stage, I would define this concept of salvation as going to heaven. So if I live as a Christian throughout my life and I believe that salvation is about going to heaven, analogously, I'm suggesting to you that this is about the amount of space that you're staying on in the Christian life when a vast cosmos is open to you because of Jesus. Okay? That's a big deal, because if you're like me, you've grown up thinking that that is salvation. It's, it's all salvation is. But there's some interesting things in Peter's language that we'll hear in his sermon today, and also it draws us into the way that Luke talks through his gospel, and also um, surely in the book of Acts, which he wrote. Okay, so that's kind of a framework. And now, moving from that idea, think of a question with me. Do you ever wonder if your way of life is actually killing you? Do you ever think that? Do you ever think that way? I bet that you don't, unless you're a coal miner, you know? You're like, I got the black lung pop, and you know you're dying. Maybe you've been eating a lot of Taco Bell, and so you're just like, I, I can see it. I can see that my way of life is literally killing me. But I think most of us just say, you know, I do what I do, 
I work, I try to not be super bad, and then I know I'm going to die in the future or whatever, but right now I'm just trying to get through this week. All right? Very rarely do I think we actually sit down and hear my chosen way of life is actually killing me. I'm like a sugar cube, and I'm pouring hot water on myself. I'm slowly dissolving my own humanity by the way that I live. I think Paul captures this idea with, for the wages of sin is death. This is the way we live in our world. What about the opposite question? Ever wonder if your way of life could actually be enlivening you? Rather than killing you, the things that you choose to think about, the things you choose to love, the things you choose to do, could those choices, those things that you're actively engaged with, could they be bringing you to life? Making you come alive? I would suspect we probably don't think that either. We've all been very, very well conditioned to have flags, red caution flags flying left and right anytime we sniff just a smidgen of something that sounds like works-based salvation. And so we just say, no, there's no way I could do anything like that. That's only Jesus. It's, it's, there's just no way. It's salvation is in Christ alone. My hope is in Christ alone. It's not by any, any, anything that I do. That's a rubric. It's a way of viewing salvation that I suspect many of us, maybe not all, but many of us have, have just sort of grown up that way. But I wonder if that way of thinking about it is pretty constraining. Consider a short parable here before we get to our passage. I think there's more than one way to use certain words, all right? Here it is. Two friends are meeting in the morning one time for coffee, and they want to talk about flying, but one of them must soon leave to go pick up a family member. Human beings can fly, the first friend says, after sipping the last of her latte. Nope, says the other quite confidently. People do not fly because they cannot fly she says. And then she stands up, heads out to the airport to pick up her mom, who just flew in from Minnesota. <laughs> ah. Words, what they mean, how we perceive them, there's something there. Can your way of life actually save you? Can human beings fly? We'll be in Acts 2 again which Ashwa started for us last week and he was preaching about this sermon of Peter. This is Peter's big first sort of sermon, the paradigmatic sermon right at Pentecost. It's a big deal. So we're in the exact same scene. A week has passed for us, but Peter's still right there. And this is the scene where everybody's gathered around, lots of people, and, and we see these glowing orbs. We have no language to describe them other than they look like tongues of fire on their head. The, the wind is rushing. There's this presence of the Spirit. It's incredible. Something very, very new is happening. Something that has never, ever happened before. And so everybody's unsettled by what's going on. But it's also very beautiful. And, 
And Peter links it. He sees maybe what you might think of as the first rays of dawn breaking through darkness, and he links it. He says, this is what Joel, the great prophet, was talking about. So in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 2, Peter quotes the words of Joel, and he says, and in those last days it will be, God says, it will be that I will pour out my spirit on all people and on your sons and on your daughters, and they will prophesy, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will speak the words of God to one another. They will prophesy. All right. This is what's happening. People who did not ever go to Chinese class are speaking Chinese, just like that. They're speaking the words of God to one another. They're speaking different languages. It's incredible. And that's, Peter says, that's it. This is what Joel was talking about. This is the beginning of the last days. It's happening right now in our midst. It's the Old Testament, if you will, or the Old Covenant. All that we've been talking about is now coming to fruition. It's becoming fulfilled. How is it that a covenant or an agreement between God and human beings gets fulfilled? Jesus, we're told all throughout the New Testament, he's the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of all that God's people have been taught to do and think and all that kind of stuff. Here comes Jesus. Well, how does that work? Boy, I tell you what, that is an important question. That is worth for any Christian in this room who wonders about the law and its fulfillment. It's a, it's a deep inquiry, and it's very much worth pursuing. So I can't encourage you enough. I would like to go for six or seven hours on it right now, and I know you want me to as well. But we'll both refrain for the sake of our lunch that's coming up. It's important to think about. What does it mean that Jesus fulfills this law? All right. Here's an analogy. Think of why you might want to buy a kiddie pool to put out in the backyard. All right. Why would you want to do that? Well, it's probably like uh, to fill it with water and then to have children and puppies splash around in it. That's, that might be your intent. My goal is to get a kiddie pool filled with water with children and puppies having a great time splashing around in it. Once that has happened, all that you originally set out to accomplish has been fulfilled. Your goal is reached. Getting the pool, going down to whatever, Target, and buying the pool itself is not accomplishing it, is it? It's the first step. It's a preliminary thing you need to do. But the pool has only set up the way that this water will be contained where and how, okay? The pool itself is not any kind of fulfillment. Notice, notice in this case, however well you followed the rules necessary to acquire the swimming pool, it still hasn't been fulfilled. What it was there for hasn't yet happened. Until you have children and puppies and water splashing together, it remains unfulfilled. If the old covenant was like a kiddie pool, if, if you think about it, this, I mean, this is pretty, this is pretty uh, elementary here, but if, if, if you think about it that way, it's, it's set God's people up to receive the Spirit, to receive Jesus. By itself, the law did not have any power to give life but it set us up for the life giver. Does that make sense? 
So Paul will say that. The law can't bring life. Only Jesus brings life. And then we don't then say, well, the law doesn't matter then. No, it does. Very much so. But it's how we come into knowing Jesus. So, Jesus comes. Peter says, this is being fulfilled right now in these last days as the Spirit is being poured out. And it's so full that the Spirit that Jesus gives to us will start pouring out generously over all the entire world. You might, at that juncture, you could say Christians are, are pour-overs. You know, that goes well in Portland. I think it's pretty biblical. In the end, here's the deal. The great purposes of God were not fulfilled in the law. But in Jesus, we see the, that the law prepared for him. In Jesus, what do we see? When we look at him, we see love for God, the Father. First and foremost, that guy is devoted to the Father God. He loves him with everything he's got. What else do we see in Jesus? Tremendous love for his neighbor, for the other. Unrestrained love, reckless love like we just sang about. So we see in Jesus, in his way of life, the fulfillment of all that the law set out to do. We start to trust in God. We start to trust then in Jesus. And this is the move that's happened in the gospel. Now, I mentioned earlier that verse, verse 22, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier or not. Did I? You wouldn't know. Verse 22 is where we pick it up today, and it's the, it's the beginning of this second movement in his sermon. That's where I want to go. In verse 22, he's going to move from the opening idea, which is the last days are here, and now in the second half of the sermon, he's going to say, here's how I know for sure that that's the case, okay? So verse 22 of Acts 2. Men of Israel, listen to these words, Jesus, the Nazarene. A man clearly attested to you by God with powerful deeds and wonders and miraculous signs that God performed among you through him, just as you yourselves know. Verse 23, this man who was handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you executed by nailing him to a cross by the hands of Gentiles. That's big. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, this man, you killed him. And this guy, he didn't just come in making claims. He showed us his power. He showed us through his signs and miracles. He demonstrated that he was no joke. You killed him. You've got to pause for a second there. Look very carefully at the depth and the intelligence of Jesus, his honesty. Did any Jewish person drive a single nail into that cross? Did they cut him? Did they kill him? No, look at how, look at how smart Jesus is, though. If you're somebody who really dislikes it when people are fake with you, if you dislike being fake and pretentious yourself, you'll love Jesus. <laughs> he is not fake. He's not a poser, and he can see right through any facade. We all saw 
in the Gospel of Mark, if you were here through our Mark series, we saw that Jesus knows your heart. He's not dumb. Here, to Jews who had never touched a nail, they've never picked up a spear, at least in terms of killing Jesus, to these guys, they never hung him on anything, much less a cross. Peter nevertheless says, you executed him by nailing him to a cross at the hands of the Gentiles. In other words, I don't care how you want to spin it technically, the point is that you wanted him dead. You desired for him to be removed from this world, period. That was where your heart was at. You guys are all about the Messiah, yes? Oh yeah, totally, we're waiting for the Messiah, good. And you can't wait for him to come and save God's people, right? You've been talking, oh yeah, we're stoked. Well, I hate to break this news to you, but you straight up murdered him. What? That loser from Nazareth? Nothing good comes out of Nazareth, much less the Messiah. Yeah, I know you think that, but I'm serious. You did kill him. You killed the Christos that we have been talking about for thousands of years. Uh-oh. That's problematic. Verse 24, but God raised him up. You killed him, but God raised him up having released him from the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held in its power. For David says about him, and he's going to jump to Psalm 16 here, for David says about him, I saw the Lord always in front of me, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My body also will live in hope. Because you will not leave my soul in Hades, nor permit your Holy One to experience decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of joy with your presence. This is David writing a psalm long ago, and it's a messianic psalm. It's got enough in it where we know he's, he's talking about himself, kind of, but this language of, um, this language doesn't quite connect with just David's life. It's beyond that. We can sense it. It's talking about the great Messiah coming. In verses, in these verses, 25 through 8, you kind of say, okay, I see in my, most of you in the side of your Bible, it'll say this is a reference to Psalm 16. You say, why is he quoting Psalm 16 here? What's, why point to that passage out of everything that he can point to? Why this one? I think he's trying to make crystal clear one massive truth that we sometimes think of as a tiny truth. The truth is this. Your human body... The truth is about your human body and what it can do and what it cannot do. Remember, people cannot fly just as much as people cannot live again after they die. We rarely think that through with, with words in our brain. It's almost as though it's just built into our proper instinct. Our most, when I mean proper, I mean our most basic instinct. The same kind of instinct that you have to draw breath. You're just not thinking about it a lot. 
you genuinely do believe that you'll that you will die and that that will be the end of something very 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 good okay verse 27 you did not leave me in Hades it's the equivalent of Sheol that's Peter's way of opening the door to gaze upon questions about the afterlife. Do people remain in the place of death forever? Don't read Hades and think hell the way that you envision hell. This is the equivalent of a Jewish Sheol, an underworld, the place where the dead go. And in this day, there's lots of debate about resurrection. Does it happen? Does it not? Most said no. Most of the Jewish community said no. The ones who really believed and we're starting to believe resurrection was possible was the Pharisees, okay? So they're having a conversation in this time. But here's this, and, and this is why they're having a conversation. You have passages like this. What do we do with these, okay? The next clause in the same line, verse 27, and you did not permit your Holy One to experience decay. You didn't allow Jesus of Nazareth, his body, to experience decay. The Jewish mind understands that when you, in this day, uh, when you die, your spirit stays with you for three days. And on the fourth day, then it leaves, and that's the day that you begin to corrupt. So in uh, John 11, something like that, the, the resurrection of Lazarus, Lazarus is, is uh, being engaged with on the fourth day. And you remember it says he was starting to stink. So that's how they envisioned it. So Jesus being dead and gone for three days, but raised up on the third day means, and this is what we're seeing here, God did not allow him to be corrupted. Whatever the science is there doesn't really matter. It's just God didn't allow him to be corrupted. That's the message of the Bible for us. It didn't happen. Luke looks at the resurrection of Jesus, and he does not see that Jesus' body was placed in a tomb, and then Jesus' sort of being or, or invisible spirit went up into a place of ethereal sort of mystical existence. This is a full-fledged human flesh, blood and bone bodily resurrection. And it's critical to all of Christianity. He is literally raised from the dead in his body. The resurrection is not about a corruption of a body and then the, the removal of the soul to a better place. The resurrection is about incorruption, incorruptibility, can't be dissolved kind of existence. And Jesus, our firstborn brother, is the one who said, if you're with me, you're going to experience something like this. The human body can do something nobody ever thought it could do. Peter's opening a window to look at the most profound, informative reality for literally the rest of your entire life. There's nothing in your life that matters more than resurrection if you're a follower of Christ. But I wonder if we live that way. Whatever decay we experience in our bodies right now, and look, I tell you, find one of our, our seasoned saints, our old men and women who go to church here who are 80, 90 years old, and ask them about what it's like to have a body that is coming undone under the weight of this world. It is a brutal reality. 
So yes, we are going to experience some sense of decay, our body breaking down, it's going to happen. But whatever decay we experience is not, I'll say it again, it is not ultimate. It's something temporary. This is the hope of resurrection. The hope of resurrection is literally don't worry about the 80 or 90 years that you supposedly have. I think uh, as of December last year, this new stats are in America, your average lifespan is 78.6 years. In every single thing that you'll see on television, billboards, everything you'll experience by way of our media and marketing in our world for the rest of this day will be built on the notion that you don't have much time left. Resurrection changes that. You say, well, yeah, 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 Ben, I know. I know that Jesus' atoning blood of the Lamb washes away my scarlet sins and makes them white as snow and that he's preparing for me a heavenly apartment on golden streets. I know already I'm going to live with him eternally. So I already know about the resurrection. I'm good. Okay, that's fair. But I suspect that for some of us who are happy to believe that we will be resurrected, I bet there's some of us who still have uh, this, this kind of sense. I'll ask you this. Are, are there any things that you say, I really want to accomplish this before I die? Is there anything in your head or mind or heart or life who say, gosh, if I don't get this done before I die, if I don't get to see that place, if I don't get to have this experience before I die, something is motivating you. And I don't know that it's the hope of resurrection. Take it a step further. What are we willing to do to ourselves to see and experience and accomplish all that we desire? What are you willing to put on that God's altar? The one that says, if you just have, fill in the blank. We're all going to fill the blank in differently. Are we willing to invest our children into so many activities and so many responsibilities that they learn the way of stress and fear and anger by age eight and the way of cutting and depression by age 12? Is that what we're willing to do? Subject our little human beings to endless rigor so that they don't miss it, so they don't fall behind, so they don't lose any experience in this life because it's so short. A whole generation of young people slicing their arms, dumping medicine into their mouths, and even Christian men and women saying, you've got to do it. If you don't make the grade, you might lose something very valuable. And then we read Jesus in the gospel, a peaceful man walking gently with people, seems to have no fear whatsoever. And he tells us, I know the truth about this world, and I'm not so sure that you guys do as much as you think. Are we willing to work seven days a week nonstop just to make sure that we can afford to experience all the best that life has to offer? Just grinding it down. 
meeting our children for the first time when they're 20? Have you ever wondered if you're endlessly hectic, exhausting, chaotic, and unmanageable life is actually driven by fear rather than love and trust? My friends, my church, this world is spinning fast. And people are drinking some kind of Kool-Aid that I desperately do not want you to drink as your friend and as your pastor. It's a message that's just as artificial as the Kool-Aid's flavoring. The message says you only have so much time. Get what you can before it's too late. I won't ever have a fulfilling job if I don't have one now. I won't ever have a large family if I don't have one now. I won't ever be able to bless others the way that I want to if I don't have the cash now. The only reason that we think these things is because we don't take seriously that we will be raised up as real human beings with real human bodies doing everything we love to do forever. Tree houses and exploring, jobs and vocation, working, building, creating, inventing, families, growth, nations, art, artwork, music. Can you imagine how good you'll be at the guitar after you've been practicing it for 48 trillion years? You know, Hendrix was awesome, but he only practiced for a little while compared to that. Men and women, we have become constrained into the tiniest little box. And Satan is saying, you're almost out of time. And Jesus is saying, look at me, sons and daughters. We do not have to worry about that stuff. There is no such thing as too late for the Christian mind. How do you know? Just look at Jesus, Peter is saying. You need to refocus your hope. God, by not allowing Jesus to decay or disintegrate, shows all of humanity a truly human life that is not bound to the power of sin and death. Jesus' way of life moves through the sin and the death and the grave. N.T. Wright says this, the whole entire reference to Psalm 16 only makes sense if the resurrection is a bodily event in which Jesus' physical body did not decay in the same way as the great patriarchs of old. And you saw that in there. Even David's still stuck in his tomb, not Jesus. Now, we go to verse 29, Peter speaking again. Brothers, I can speak confidently to you about our forefather David, that he both died and he was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. So then, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath to seat one of his descendants on the throne, David, by foreseeing this, spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades, nor did his body experience decay. This Jesus, God raised up, and we are all witnesses of it. Okay, that's pretty cool. David foresaw it, is how Peter's interpreting Psalm 16. 
He said, this would be the life of God's people in the future. And now, we come to Psalm 110, his next quotation. That's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, and it's a messianic psalm again. Verse 33, so then exalted to the right hand of God, Jesus is, and having received the promise of the Holy Spirit from the Father, he has poured out what you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, I think David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, Peter is now speaking to the whole assembly, all the people. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know beyond a doubt that God has made this Jesus, who you crucified, both Lord and Christ, both the King of the cosmos and the Messiah. God made him that way. All right? That's a big moment in the sermon. I remember I was a kid, I grew up in Burlington, Wisconsin. There's a train line that came through it, and the first president, George W., was doing his campaign stuff. And George W. was coming in on the train. You can imagine this little town has 7,000 people. Everybody gathered around to see this presidential candidate coming in. Well, you know, trains and campaign schedules and whatever, they got a little bit delayed. So we're sitting there, and there's different people coming up each time to speak, you know little stump speeches about this, rah-rah that, rah-rah this, and everybody's kind of hanging around, checking their pagers. We didn't have cell phones yet, pagers, you know. And we're hanging out, chatting, kind of paying attention to the speaker, whatever. But then when the, when the train came in and the presidential candidate took the stage, guess what? Everybody did. They're just locked on. Just silent, nobody's doing anything, we're just listening because this is the moment, you know. That's what happened just now, I think, at the Pentecost scene. I don't know if they were dilly-dallying as much as I've described, but I guarantee this was a pin-drop silent moment. This is the one. This is the one whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Whoa. Peter was pretty persuasive. Notice what, they, what happens next, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. They were acutely distressed. What Peter said to them pierced into their soul. They said, whoa, they heard him. Not everybody, I don't think, but a lot of them. And Peter, and they said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, what should we do? You know, they feel convicted. Kind of like, what have we done? Oh my gosh, now what should we do? Peter said to them, he noticed he didn't say, you don't have to do anything, guys. Just think the right facts about God and you'll be fine. He didn't say that. He followed up with two action verbs. They said, what do we do? He said, repent and be baptized. Repent and each one of you be baptized. How? In the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. That's cool because they're sitting here watching people receiving the gift of the Holy Spirit and in an admittedly dramatic way, you know, but you're sitting there you're like, wow, the end times, the prophet Joel and many have been talking about are in play right now and here I am on the sideline, I'm over in the box 
And Jesus just said, everybody in this box are the murderers of Jesus. Or not Jesus, uh, Peter. Peter just said that. So you're sitting in a weird spot and you say, man, what do I do to get to this place where everybody's receiving the Spirit? And Jesus says, you're going to have to step out of the box that you've been in, the way you've been living, and you're going to have to move over to a whole different way of life. That's what repentance is, turning from what you've been doing and turning towards something new, and that would be the way of Christ. Wow, so verse 39, the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far away, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. Okay, Peter, that's a little confusing to me. It's not just what I do, it also is based on the call of God. And to that I would say, yes, both are true. I'm not going to try to slice that down too much. I'm going to say, apparently, we have to make a call, and apparently, so does God. And he calls us according to his own good pleasure, his will. Both seem to be necessary. Verse 40, with many other words, Peter testified and exhorted them, saying, save yourselves. How interesting is that? Save yourselves from this perverse generation so that those who accepted his message were baptized and on that day about 3,000 people were added. There's thousands of people listening to Peter give this talk. That's amazing. And he says, you're going to need to save yourself by doing these things, repenting and being baptized into the name of Jesus. And you say, what do I do with this? Is he seriously saying that you can save yourself? Because if that's the case, my Bible's in, I'm in trouble, or me and my Bible are going to have a problem later on. I don't get this. Okay, first of all, I think every one of us, we, we're just people, so this isn't a, a shame thing. We're just people. We have a prefabricated concept of salvation. And I would suggest that almost all of us, if not all of us, understand it as going to heaven in, in the future at some point. So the question, can you save yourself, is always answered the same way we answer, can a human fly? And the answer is no, we cannot make ourselves go to heaven. You see? If that's how you view salvation, then you couldn't answer Peter's question the way Peter answered it, or, or say what Peter said. But what if we're missing something important from Jesus' own teaching when he says that the eternal kingdom of God is truly at hand? It has now drawn near because of his preaching of the good news. The kingdom of God is at hand, and it's actual good news. I think that when Peter preaches this and when Luke records it in Acts 2, both are understanding a part, a side, a, a dimension of salvation that has everything to do with leaving the kingdoms and the empires of this world and entering into the eternal kingdom of God. A great theologian named George Ladd wrote on this and coined a phrase called, we, we say salvation is both now and not yet. We don't make ourselves go to heaven we don't save ourselves in terms of the way that God finally restores us into eternal beings that can live in his kingdom. We can't do that. I don't have the power to do that. I don't even want the power to do that. That's Jesus' deal. But we do have the ability to make decisions that are rooted in the kingdom of God and the way it works or not. 
We do have the ability to exercise our will, our volition, our thinking. We can even craft our affections through disciplines and through loving one another in community. All of those are part of salvation. Read through the Gospel of Luke and you will see him talk about salvation in terms of social relationships, salvation in terms of the way you're perceived in the world. You can be saved from the oppression of worldly powers. Salvation is multiplex, not simplistic. And so Luke can write this way without becoming a heretic to many of us, okay? And you look at it and you say, huh, step out of the kingdoms or empires of this world. You say, I actually care about following your lead, Jesus, in the best way that I possibly can. I can actually see how broken and dead the world is around me. Because of your gospel and your life and your spirit, I'm starting to be able to see that what this world promises isn't legit. Cemeteries prove it. And I want to opt out, and I want to opt in to the kingdom of God. Was Jesus constantly stressed and angry and depressed and running around as though he hardly had any time left? He only got to live 33 years. We get 78.6, you know. And he seems to have an understanding that he wasn't going to be around that long. But he's not that way. He's not a stressed out dude. Was he suspicious and cynical, always pointing out everybody else's faults around him, making sure that every sinner he encountered knew that they were sinful and terrible? No. He wasn't afraid to talk about sin. He certainly hates sin. He's God. And yet, his hatred for sin seems to be quite a bit smaller than his love for people, for you, for me. I see compassion in Jesus' eyes. I see him saying, I didn't come here to condemn you. You already have done that to yourselves, and you can know that by the way that you live and feel. You know that this goes to a cemetery. You know that your life is stressed and ravaged. You know all that stuff. You've fallen so deep into your own self-inflicted condemnation that the Holy One sent by God to forgive you looked like a criminal to you. That's how I know you stand condemned already. You thought I was a bad guy. And I, was, I loved you more than anybody else ever did. Jesus knew that resurrection was real. His hope was not in being correct. His hope was not in having the best possible life that he could. Foxes have dens, birds have nests, but the Son of Man doesn't even have a place to lay his head down. That's not a guy who's trying to build a mansion, all right? That's a guy who says, these, these years are not, I'm not trying to do that here. Why? Because he was able to see not a 33-year or a 78.6-year lifespan, but an endless one. Billions of quintillions of years of life back to back. I mean, this is an early Easter sermon, but that's good. We can preach about as resurrection more often. I think we need to. When we opened this text this morning, we saw Peter quoting from Psalm 16. He's emphasizing the fact that David went to a grave, rotted there, and his grave is still there. Now that the Spirit has been poured out in these last days, that was the first part of his sermon, now that that's happened, 
we recognize that the hope we have for the future is directly rooted in the fact that we never die. Just like Jesus, who's our firstborn brother, we live on with him. The urgency that drives us to save as much money goes away. We want to save as much as we can before it's too late. That dissipates in resurrection. The urgency that drives us to fret over what we don't yet have goes away. The urgency that makes us feel forever inadequate, and there's just little time left to do it, it dissipates. All that stuff is rooted in the sense that we have a short life. When Peter says that these Jewish people in the audience can save themselves from their wicked generation, he's not just talking about a future end. We've already heard him say that he believes the end is in play now. This is it now. No, he's telling them you can step out of that way of life, the one that blinded you so bad. He's giving them the gift of living with a resurrection focus. And I want us as a community to live that way. We will be 100,000 times more patient with each other. We will recognize that people are complex and in process and the Holy Spirit is transforming us. We can be kinder. We can be better parents, moms, dads, grandmas, grandpas, not feeling like we need to pressure our little ones into getting as much accomplished as possible. And instead we step back and say, God has said these early years of an endless life are really, really aimed at you learning to love your God and love others with everything you've got. Pursue great things, accomplish great things, enjoy a full life. Do after school programs, train your children in arts and music and all of that. But insofar as it's not helping them to love God and love others, you're harming them. If it is just creating in them competition and stress and the fear that they might fail and lose something big, you're wandering your own children away from the Bible, away from Jesus. And that's not just for parents and children, that's for us. Live the vibrant and full life, but always conditioned through that question that they asked Jesus. What, what was all this law about? The law was to help you become somebody who loves the Lord your God with everything you've got, heart, strength, mind, soul, and love your neighbor. And you can do that, you can do that without fear if you're constantly focused on the resurrection. You don't have a short time to live. Let's pray. Jesus, it is... Uh, it is an amazing thing to be created by you and to know that you breathed your very life into us. It's fun to think about. Uh, it's too complex for us at first glance, and I suspect we'll need a lot of time to see how profoundly beautiful that is. But we now live with your life in us. Help us to see it. Help us to see your call through the New Testament to focus on the fact that you raised to hear the great apostles' words saying, if you didn't raise from the dead, this is, a, this is a silly game we're playing. It's so crucial. Thank you for these words from Peter. This ancient sermon rings true still today. It does for me in my heart and soul. I suspect it does for everybody here who's listening to you and wanting to pursue you. 
I ask that as you pour your Holy Spirit out upon every soul in this room, you would bring to us shalom that is informed by you and your resurrection. Bring us to a place of peace with one another and with ourselves as we remember we have all the time in the world to learn to love one another and to love you, our great creator, our firstborn brother, our savior and our king, amen.